In your life as a student or as a researcher, you may hear discouraging voices telling you you're not good enough, not intelligent enough, or even not mad enough for the task or the project at hand. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Cindy Huffington, founder of CuriousNeuron.com, about why it is important to distance yourself from these opinions, to listen to your own inner voice and to your own will, but also to take into account input coming from people who have more than a unidimensional impression of your personality and your abilities. But you know what, in the end, I guess that comment and that resilience really helped during a PhD because, you know, when you give a talk and it's, you know, your weekly lab meeting, you're not going to be thrown flowers, you know, after your <laughs> talk, you're going to be criticized. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish I was. But I, so you're going to be torn down. That presentation that you gave is going to be completely demolished and up to your title not being good. You know, whatever it is, you didn't use the right PowerPoint slides, you know, the your information was wrong, you didn't say it properly, your stats are off, your numbers are off. So I think we need to build that sort of resilience, especially if you're going in grad school, because you're going to get criticized. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. I'd really love you, the audience, to play an active role in the show. So if there's a theme you'd like to see covered on the show, or if there's a guest you'd like me to interview, head over to anchor.fm forward slash Papa PhD and drop us a voice message to be featured on a future episode. On the Papa PhD website, you can also subscribe to our newsletter and get our resource sheet at the bottom of every page, and you can also leave us a written message in our contacts page. Welcome to the show. So today we're talking with Cindy Huffington. Cindy did her PhD in neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal, where she focused on cognitive and emotional difficulties experienced in people with psychosis. She volunteered with a program called BrainReach at McGill, and this is how she came to love knowledge translation. She then decided to pursue a postdoc in education and studied the impact of knowledge translation in the community. In parallel, she launched her company, Curious Neuron, a resource for parents and caregivers that provides science-backed info about child development and education, where she has been able to merge both of her fields of study. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Hi, thanks for having me. So... Tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, about your experience going through grad school and, and a, a little bit about what you do today. Sure. Um, do you want me to start from the bachelor's or a PhD? <laughs> My whole academic life? <laughs> well, maybe if there's a key moment uh, during your bachelor's, uh, uh, you know, for sure, you can start there. Yeah. Well, I, I think just a, a quick uh, background, because I, I started off in... Um, clinical exercise physiology for my bachelor for my bachelor's and then I ended up in rehabilitation for my master's and during my master's I really I, I was studying um, motor imagery so thinking about something without physically doing it and so it, it touched upon the brain and neuroscience and that's what led to me going into neuroscience at McGill um, to study um, schizophrenia or early episode psychosis and uh, I studied uh, these patients who it's so it's early episode psychosis when the symptoms are starting and uh, they're they're having a lot of cognitive difficulties 
and emotional difficulties. And I wanted to see the patients who uh, experience negative symptoms um, persistently. So negative symptoms being lack of motivation, um, not enjoying something that you used to before. So these symptoms uh, can appear in mental health. Um, and when you have um, a depression or, or schizophrenia or psychosis. And these, what I just learned is that these patients also have difficulties in verbal memory, just as a, a, back, I know, a quick <laughs> background. And um, yeah, I think uh, I was working at the Douglas Institute in Montreal and uh, was there for, for a few years. And uh, I also started volunteering for a program called BrainReach. So and that was my way of sort of getting out of the lab once in a while. <laughs> so this was a PhD in neuroscience. Yes. So during my PhD. Yeah. And then while I was doing my PhD, I noticed that a lot of the patients we worked with were very young, were teenagers, because that's when schizophrenia or psychosis begins to show symptoms. And I, I questioned if, if these are students in classrooms and they're learning how is the brain learning when you have certain difficulties? And that led me to uh, a postdoc in education. So I, I kind of hip-hop back and forth in <laughs> different departments. I wasn't somebody who started off in psychology and continued to till their PhD, but I, whatever I was interested in led my direction into what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And, uh, but yeah, but that's it. You, the interest, the, the kind of the, the kind of line you kept that 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 line of interest throughout, uh, I guess, and that that's what's very interesting. So, it's, what's interesting me in, in what you said is that you were able to, or or not just were able, but you decided to during your PhD, uh, you know, take on some some volunteering, which was connected to what you were doing, but you know that it was extra time that you were dedicating to to something else. Extra time that we sometimes don't have, <laughs> but I, I really, um, part of me felt that something was lacking during my PhD, and I, I enjoy the research, I enjoy uh, data collection and analysis, I, reading articles, and you know, I it's not that I wasn't enjoying it, but something was missing, and I um, only realized after I started volunteering that for me, what was missing was the knowledge translation. So we're doing all this research, we're spending our entire lives, all our days. <laughs> in the lab and nobody knew about what I was doing in the sense, or, you know, what was the point of publishing these articles if my neighbor didn't know about it and couldn't apply something to their daily lives, you know, that kind of aspect. And um, I was so grateful that the, the during uh, my PhD, um, there was a professor who started this program, um, BrainReach. Her name is uh, Josephine Nalbantoglu. <laughs> And she um, launched this program for students, seeing that we had, there was a potential there in terms of having grad students in neuroscience to go into schools and in both in elementary school and in high school and to discuss the brain, because there's so much to talk about when it comes to the brain um, in terms of mental health, in terms of functioning, um, you know, what does my brain do? What is it involved in? And society wants to know. They, they you know, there's lots of discussions that could be had around that. So she had us uh, like grad students going to grade three classrooms and secondary two, I believe, um, to talk about how the brain functions. And we would return every month and talk about a different topic with the, with the students. 
Okay. And okay. And and what was the feedback of the students? They loved it. They they loved having neuroscientists come into their classroom. You know the and something that I noticed too. We would have on the first day we would ask them to draw a scientist, and most of the you know it looked like a mad scientist picture with the the beakers and the <laughs> the the flasks that had like smoke coming out of it and mad hair and <laughs> the TV scientist. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And but what was interesting is, and, and this I believe there was a study they they wrote a, a paper on this, but um, the students mostly drew men. And um, as we continued this program, we you know grew and we were in more schools and with more students. And um, a couple of years later, we noticed that students were drawing women. Um, so it was interesting to see that still with the mad hair, but you know, at least it was woman. <laughs> <laughs> the long hair. <laughs> and, uh, I think that's something that, you know, I was proud of in terms of being part of this initiative and, uh, initiative that also won awards in, in Quebec and in, in our province because of, you know, having men and women go into these classrooms and really mentor the, these kids and talk about topics that could be very serious, such as mental health. It's super, super interesting. And just out of curiosity, did boys and girls, you know, both uh, draw men at the beginning? And <laughs> that's a good question. I didn't keep stats, but I know for a fact that the girls were, but I don't remember if the, the, the guys were as well. Anyway, it's just, it's just a curiosity. <laughs> that's very cool. Uh, I took part in Brain Awareness Week, which, which was... Oh, yeah, I did that too. Yeah. But yours seemed to be more focused. The, 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 Programs seem to be more focused and and on older kids, so I think probably a different uh, different objective and different uh, impact too. Yeah, I think we wanted to like you know tackle some of the brain myths and and just really get some conversations going. And also, as grad students, we you know we we have a lot of presentations, but they're they're presentations that we give to other grad students and and researchers. But it was so different to be in the classroom and to communicate what a neuron is to a child who's in grade three right so when you when I was doing that or when we were all doing that as volunteers that's when it hits you like if I don't know what I'm talking about if I don't know the neuron is or how it communicates with other neurons I can't talk about it to a a, an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old so if you can explain something to a nine-year-old then you you really understand what you're doing. (laughs) Definitely. uh, You know they say one of the best ways to learn is to teach right? Yes. And I think that would be useful for any PhD out there, because uh, and tell me if you agree. I think that we should be better at storytelling and at and at you know being being That's able to true. tell what we do to anyone on the street. And it's not a given. No, it isn't. No, and it's a skill that we learn, and it's a skill that really helps us in our daily lives. If you're able to communicate certain things uh, in a lay form, then you're able to understand it, you know, in a more complex form as well. It's it's. And we were just thrown into this sort of the shark tank <laughs> with, you know, the PIs or your researchers or when you, whenever you have these weekly seminars yeah. with different labs and you have to talk about what you're doing. And you're like, um, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really intimidating. But I think when you practice with grade, you know, grade three students or nine-year-olds, then you really get comfortable with being in front of people and answering questions because that is a skill that is a you know to be able to understand what somebody's asking you and to be able to properly communicate what you're you want to tell them it's it's definitely a skill and we're it's not something that we're sit down we don't we don't sit down to learn this we're just again just thrown into this yeah yeah (laughs) as a grad student (laughs) it's true and and i imagine like third grade kids are probably a good 
public, you know? They have the best questions. They, re they really do. That's what I was going to ask. You know, they, they probably ask difficult questions too, although in their, you know, in their, at their level. They really do. They had so many questions that were really in-depth. And once in a while, I'd have to say, you know what? I, I really don't know the answer to that. And again, that's a skill that helped me during my seminars when somebody would ask you a question and you're not really sure instead of panicking and, 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 <laughs> and, and getting you know, a bit of anxiety, saying, I don't know what to answer. I should know this. And then you talk inside that negative talk inside your head. <laughs> when I learned how to deal with it, when grade three students asked me the question, I was like, yeah, that's great. Let me, let me get back. Yeah, I'll get you back know, to you on that. Yeah, let me get, yeah exactly. <laughs> and I couldn't believe I was saying that to a nine-year-old, but they, they really went into depth. Into, like, they, they're really curious. That's the, the beauty of teaching and teaching what you love. You, you just feed off of that person's curiosity and you learn more yourself too when you're doing this. And that was really a big part of my, I mean, I, I, I wrote my dissertation. I, I, I did my, you know, completed my PhD, but the, what marked me the most was this volunteering program. Well, and I guess this reflects on, on, on what you do today, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, well, uh, still a little bit on, on your, your PhD. So, can you tell us a little bit about what your your day-to-day -day was, you know, working around the, you know, around your, your subject? Uh, yes, yeah. it was quite a few years ago. <laughs> I've had people <laughs> who were, you know, it was pretty lab intensive and animal models, etc. How was your day-to-day -day during the PhD? So I worked with um, people, so patients who had been admitted to the Douglas Mental Health Institute in Montreal. And I worked along psychologists and psychiatrists um, And what we did is we evaluated their symptoms and we also evaluated their, their IQ. So we would do some IQ tests with them in a, you know, in the lab setting and then evaluate, you know, their verbal memory, their, their executive functions, um, their attention. And we would also have some conversations with them to see if they had insight to their symptoms. Um, and this was really interesting um, because just sitting there in a room with a, a patient who has some psychotic symptoms, their the reality isn't a reality anymore. So they might think that they have the power to, um, I don't know, change all the traffic lights, or they might feel that um, somebody is out to get them. And, you know, you have to learn how to talk with them and not You know, change your facial reaction when they tell you certain things, or you know, make it seem that you know, er, you know, everything is okay. You know, like you, you know, we're there to help them. And I think something that I learned the most from working with the people who had um, uh, first episode psychosis was that I had stigma that I didn't realize was inside, you know, inside of me. Like you just you. I remember the first time that I was placed into a room to to evaluate somebody, and I was on my own for the first time after my training. And I hesitated. I, I realized that I had a bit of a fear because I had linked people with schizophrenia to being violent. But then only after studying them and being with them, you realize it's only 1% of people with schizophrenia who are violent. And its media has made it seem as if they all are. And so I had, you know, I didn't realize that I had all these, these stereotypes and uh, that I was part of the whole stigma around it. But then, um, you know, They're, they're people like us that, and their brain is struggling with certain things and their hearing 
um, something. So with schizophrenia, you um, could have hallucinations with your five senses, either one of them. So it could be somebody who hears voices or who sees people or who has a, who smells something that's non-existent. Um, so you can have a patient who smells something that smells like garbage and they just feel like that smell is around, but it's not. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Or you can have paranoia as well um, where they feel that, you know, somebody's out to get them or it's usually in the negative um, um, context. So it was really interesting to learn more about these patients and I really appreciated them. And, and, you know, it's so tough to go through that when you're, you're just sitting at home and you hear voices telling you negative things about you, you know, and, and they're really not there, but they are, you know, um, so it was just a deeper appreciation for that. Super interesting. I didn't know it could declare itself in, in, in the different senses. I thought it was, was mostly, uh, mostly hearing. That's the most common one, yeah. Anyway, it's, you're talking about stigma and about the, the things that, that we don't know that we react to because we've somehow culturally, uh, we have this program. Yeah, exactly. And, and then you're faced with the person who said, no, this is just a person. And with schizophrenia too, they, people often think that it's um, having more than one personality, but it's not. That's a different diagnosis, but schizophrenia and, and is really just about the, the hallucinations, the, the paranoia and the negative symptoms. So the, the losing motivation um, or something that you used to. So for example, if uh, I, I play the guitar and I really um, feel happy when I play the guitar, um, I don't, by the way, but it's <laughs> all of a sudden you can experience this lack of enjoyment um, where you just don't enjoy doing it anymore so those are part of the negative symptoms in mental health that we often don't hear about or don't talk about and they can be the first symptoms that you experience when it comes to mental health so not the hallucination but the actual negative symptom the the lack of enjoyment or the lack of motivation that just comes up so those can be the first symptoms excellent You've totally changed my knowledge uh, around uh, <laughs> schizophrenia. And I guess the, the, the whole split personality thing, I, I was also, for me, I was lumping it together in, the, in that. It's, and, and it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the, big, the greatest myths when it comes to schizophrenia, that and the, the, the fact that they're violent. They're not, like I said, it's just 1%. <laughs> there we go. Let's, let's break some, uh, some yeah, uh, yeah. wrong stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, again, I find it super interesting that you, you found this time to do this while you were doing your PhD. Uh, I imagine also the fact that there was someone, uh, the, the, so the, this PI, uh, Dr. Nalbantoglu, uh, that, that was, you know, kind of championing this project probably gave you some, you know, some uh, impetus to, <laughs> to dive into it. Um, but my, my next question is, uh, when did you figure out? Because it feels that quite early on you found your passion, and and you kind of you, you kind yeah. of found what you loved to do in the domain that you were in. When did you find, or when did you decide that you were going to follow that up, but not in in the academic track, let's say? So I I I knew while I was doing my PhD or while I, when I started it, I I enjoyed what I was doing, and I always envisioned being an academic. Um, but then I would say probably year two, year three, um, I realized that I, I didn't, I didn't envision, I didn't envision a life of an academic. So I, I like the, the the actual academics part, but not the life that it entailed. The you know the long hours in the lab, the work following you wherever you go. I would hear about some PIs, you know, bring their laptops and they're on the beach with their kids, but they're they're working on an article or 
um, a grant application and I knew that I wanted to start a family soon and I, I didn't want that for my family. So I, um, I had started volunteering for a program uh, called Brain Awareness uh, at, at McGill. So that's when you just teach once in, in March. That's around the world, I think, Brain Awareness. And that sort of triggered a bit of that, hmm, okay, there's, this is fun. I really enjoyed this. And then a, a year later, um, Dr. Uh, Nal Van Tonglu, uh, she st- initiated this Brain Reach program. And it was like an extension of this brain awareness where you're not just going once a year, but you're returning eight times in the same classroom. So you're really teaching and you're really developing that relationship with these students. And I remember I, I signed up right away and I, um, I never met her before. And she was sitting in the auditorium and I I knew who she was. So I, I walked up to her after the end of the, the introduction when they were talking to all the new volunteers and explaining the program. I shook her hand and I said, thank you so much for starting this program. You know, one day I, I hope this becomes a job. And I think <laughs> she still remembers that conversation. And if she hears this, I'm sure she'll get a little laugh out of it because we, we still talk about it in the sense that that moment was a changing moment for my entire life because I real I hadn't even started volunteering yet, but just the idea of returning in the classroom and teaching somebody about neuroscience just really ignited something in me. The the seed was planted there. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that's awesome. And that's when so I started volunteering. I became really involved in in BrainReach, and um, near the end of my PhD, I had spoken to a professor and said, you know, I think I'm ready to start having children. I was about 30, 30 31 at that point. And I said, you know, can I stay home for a few years and then come back to research? And they just laughed. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. And I said, because, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, I hear friends. I was the last of my group of friends to have children. And they kept saying how quickly children grew up. And I, I just, you know, I was entertaining the thought of possibly being home for a few years and then coming back to research. And I realized that wouldn't happen. And then again, with that other thought that had been in my mind, uh, on my mind for a few years in the sense of you know not wanting this kind of life where you're just always at work um so those two factors kind of really really established the fact that i i did not want to continue in academia um so i um finished the same few months where i was finishing off my dissertation i started a postdoc in education because i i still wanted to see if there was you know, the possibility of continuing. I, I still enjoyed research. I, I had trouble letting go, you know, it was my, my baby, <laughs> my, my dissertation, my thoughts, my ideas, and I wanted to continue what I, I was doing. And, um, but then at the same time as I started my postdoc, I launched Curious Neuron. So I wanted to see if that would possibly work out. You know, it, it was this idea of merging, uh, of using uh, of giving parents some science-backed information. So using that evidence-based knowledge and, and translating in a way that parents could understand. I had studied the brain and I wanted to keep talking about that. I didn't want to stop talking about it. But then I was in education and I was learning about, you know, education itself and dealing with children and development. And I said, how can I, you know, merge all this? And that's how I formed Curious Neuron. And Curious Neuron eventually, uh, originally was just... Um, um, giving workshops in schools uh, because again it was that whole knowledge, knowledge translation and I wanted to continue what I had started with brain reach but instead of talking to the students I was giving workshops um, to teachers because I felt that if they understood the brain maybe that would trickle down to how they taught 
students and and perhaps changing certain things in the education system um and that continued on and i was able to stay home just long story short i guess but now curious neuron is a website and you know visited by over 74 countries now wow. so it's it, okay. it developed in something different <laughs> excellent that, that's that's super cool and and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in the second part just before we go to to the break you know there's there's you still you know you had decided that you, you know, that you weren't, that you wanted to have your family. You have, you had decided also at a certain point that you still wanted to push your research a little bit more. So you went and did your postdoc, but there were changes coming to your life and, and there was, you know, there was a transition and, and, a, and a pivot, let's say, that was coming up. Because I'm always thinking of, of the listeners and that, that might think, oh, uh, I'm a woman in science. Uh, I want to have a family. This is not, you know, this is not going to work. Or maybe I'm losing my time. Uh, and there, there may, there might be, or I'm, I'm pretty sure there is some anxiety that may might be associated uh, with with these types of decisions and of big life transitions. Was it all a breeze for you, or did you have <laughs> I these moments of like self uh, self analysis and? Uh, I do every day <laughs> <laughs> with three kids. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, you know, well, in terms of, I don't regret anything that I did. I, I, I would do it all over again. I really enjoyed um, doing a PhD and I, I really enjoyed the the science aspect of it. And the, it's just the intellect part, you know, just sitting there having conversations with other PIs and, and other grad students. And, you know, I, I, I gained a lot from it. I gained, you know, uh, the knowledge, but also, you know, being able to, public, you know, public speaking, um, uh, just planning like a champion, right? Like you have so many deadlines and just being able to multitask, although the brain doesn't technically multitask, but being able to multitask, you know, meet these deadlines and um, just the, you know, learning how to process data and and, and learning how to script. And, you know, there, there are obviously these little skills that I don't have to, you know, read MRI data anymore, but it's it's definitely as a whole there were a lot of skills that I was able to, I, I was able, I'm able to apply now in my everyday, but there were also jobs I had, you know, I entertained the idea of going into the pharmaceutical industry and um, there are lots of jobs there as well. But for me, it was just, um, I was looking for something that would allow me to be home with my children and um, to keep reading neuroscience articles. I just really, that was one of my goals. The fact that you did something you loved, it's kind of an auto self-care. You, you know, you're spending time working on something you love to do. But um, for people out there that may be anxious about what's coming after, did, did you have any other extracurricular activities or strategies or habits that, that helped you, you know, push through and then finish your PhD and defend and then go through your postdoc? Uh, do you have some advice for daily habits that might help people go through, even though they already know that they they probably not going to follow up and 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 have their lab or uh... yeah well I, i've i've always been a workaholic so if if my husband were to hear this he'd just like clap and say yes, she is <laughs> she still is <laughs> um it's he, i you know i have memories of him uh, bringing me some dinner at the library at the montreal neurological like it, when you're a student there right you can access it whenever you can whenever you want and it was like midnight or something and i hadn't eaten and he just, you know, called me and said, I'm bringing you pasta. <laughs> so it, it, you know, I just lived at the lab. I lived in the library. I, my favorite place in the world was the library at the Manjah, at the MNI. It was just, um, and I, 
I even when I realized I didn't want to continue, I just I I really wanted to finish it because I enjoyed what I was doing and it doesn't mean that it was easy, you know, it was always a struggle for me. I I think a misconception from family and friends sometimes is that oh you got a PhD because you know learning is learning comes easy to you and it's it's not true I I um, struggled with school since high school I would always have trouble with math and with physics and um, you know the stats aspect of my PhD was always something that I struggled with personally and the data analysis and I persevered I I I knew that I wanted to finish this and I think that's what pushed me that that internal motivation and um, even to the point where uh, you know I, I had been told when I was in siege up here in Montreal that by a teacher that you know I wasn't meant for science and that really marked me um, and you know I went ahead and got a PhD in science so uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> you know it's it's I, I think we can't, you know, set our limits. And if that's something that we want, even if we see ourselves getting out of the industry, we're going to gain a lot from it. And, you know, if anything, I, you know, have this story to tell my children where I persevered and I struggled and stayed awake so many nights, you know, working and studying. And I, what, to me, what stood out the most is I always enjoyed it. I think if I didn't enjoy staying up all night and, and, you know, meeting all these deadlines that we had. And uh, I don't think I would have continued it, but I really like thoroughly enjoyed it. That's, that's uh, super true. I think uh, um, the, 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 to have the motivation uh, within you to go through is, is key. And, and when people maybe think, oh, learning comes easy to you. I think it's more a question of motivation and, and then ease to, (laughs) to learn. It's, pushing through and, and seeing an objective that's far, far away and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like Frodo and get to the mountain of doom and drop that thing in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's something that we apply in our everyday life, you know, even as a parent, <laughs> sometimes we need to persevere. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> that internal motivation, <laughs> stay awake and feed throughout the night. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> nothing's lost. <laughs> Excellent. So let's go into into our little break, and uh, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more. Maybe talk a little bit about uh, the experience of of being a, a woman in in the the STEM domain, and uh, and uh, what role models you may have had that that inspired you throughout. Thank you. Yeah. Before going on with the interview, I want to thank you for listening to the show. If you like an episode and feel that it's helped you or inspired you in any way, share it with your friends. Maybe it will inspire them too. And be sure to follow Papa PhD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. So, welcome to part two of this episode of Papa PhD. We're talking with Cindy Huffington, and um, so we just heard Cindy talk about her studies and and how she got to where where she is today. Uh, and just before the break, she told us about this teacher who told her at a certain point of her studies uh, before before university that she wasn't cut out for science cindy uh, having you know defending your phd and finishing must have been uh, quite a moment it really was yeah i remember just that first of all that breath that that exhale <laughs> all that work just paid off and all those years of studying and those hours that you put into and talk and, about delayed gratification eh? <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> and uh, and then just the tears that just followed and i remember 
you know, I, I kept telling myself, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And then they shake your hand and they say, congratulations. And then you just start crying <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're like, wow, you know, it's, it's not, it wasn't easy. It just, you know, you, you lost friends along the way. Family members don't know who you are anymore. And <laughs> it's, 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 uh, you know, definitely something that I was proud of. And, uh, I kept hearing that voice of the teacher that told me in CJP, you know, like you, you, you weren't cut out for sciences. And it, then I, you know, told the PIs that were there and, and my, my panel, you know, that that was the reason why I was crying. You know, I had that voice in, at the back of my mind and it just really, you know, st stood with me. It stuck with me for some reason. I guess those negative words just, they, they motivated me and, but they also, you know, were that negative voice too. Like, am I good enough? And, uh, but, you know, after finishing, I, I really changed a bit in terms of my internal talk, you know, like that, that negative internal self-talk, it became, you know, I could do anything I want. Anything you want is, is truly, you know, at your grasp. You could just get it as long as you work for it. I think that that's super important what you're saying. One comment that, that comes up to me is this person said this, uh, it, was, it was hurtful and it got you questioning yourself throughout, yeah. you know, years and years. But science, you know, science is not one thing. Uh, and I, I think that's one important thing uh, people, you know, people and listeners uh, should, should be conscious of is, you know, not all science is engineering, not all science is calculus, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's so many things that, that, are, that you can do that are science and, and that, that um, uh, require different aspects of, of, of your intelligence, let's say. Yeah, and I, I think the foundation of that and the foundation of science is curiosity. So I had been curious as a child. I had been curious, you know, even in CJEP when I wasn't doing well, perhaps I didn't have, the, you know, the cognitive abilities to remember certain math equations or physics, you know, stuff. <laughs> but I, I always had the curiosity in that, was the foundation for everything that I did. So it led me into my bachelor's, into my master's, into my PhD and my postdoc. And still today, that curiosity is what drives me in terms of, you know, launching certain things for, for Kirsten Neuron and for play with my children. I want them to also have that curiosity. Yeah, uh, the, for sure. Curiosity is, is the, the basis of all of discovery. And, and just think of those, those early scientists that we hear about all the time, like uh, in Fleming, etc. They were extremely curious people. That's exactly. what they were, you know, and, yes. and uh, often they, they didn't have training or specific uh, education in the domain that they were, you know, doing these crazy experiments in. They were just curious and they, they were like, well, let's find out. Uh, if that frog leg moves when we stimulate the nerves. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. so, and they weren't a neurophysiologist. No. They, they were something else. So yeah. that, that, that's one thing that, that I think is super cool. Uh, now, this incident makes me think of, you know, that there's a lot of talk today about how important it is to empower women to, to follow the career that they choose. And one of the, the domains where there's a lot of focus on is the, the STEM domain, you know, science, technology, uh, engineering, math mathematics. I think that's what STEM stands for. Yes. Yeah. And it's pretty sad that someone at your school would say In something. In the STEM industry. Yeah. yeah would would <laughs> say something yeah. like that because it's, it's almost like shutting a door and shutting down your curiosity, which is that flame that should always be alive. 
especially at an age where you're so e- easily influenced, you know, being 17, 18 years old in CJEP. This person, these people have some authority. Yeah. Yeah. Not over you, but they're, they give an, an image of authority and you're like, oh, well, if, if they say that, you know, it might be true. Uh, yeah. They must know what they're talking about, right? <laughs> how did you find it in yourself to then say, you know what, I'm going to just, I'm going to go just push through and I believe in myself. Yeah, it was crushing that moment. I still remember being in that office. I remember the teacher, you know, telling me this and I, I it really marked me. But um, on the other hand, I think I was always, like I said, curious and resilient too. Um, I don't know how I built resilience as a child. I don't know what was done in my childhood, but I had, you know, a, a, a grandfather that was very present and very strong and, 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 and empowering and, you know, in my life. And, you know, he would always tell me like to never give up. So I think that played a big role in who I became as a person and, you know, being told that you can't do something while well, I had my grandfather's voice also in the background saying like, you never say that, you know, it's like that little blue, that, that blue engine or that little engine that could, you know, I think I can, I think I can. <laughs> so it's just, um, I, I think even hearing that voice, you know, is two-sided where it's like crushing but at the same time it's like well I need to prove you wrong <laughs> in a sense you know um and that really like pushed me forward um but yeah it's it's I I think as a teacher um you know we should always we should never let we should never establish somebody else's um limits as a parent or as a teacher let them figure things out and let them you know, push through, but we should never say, you know, this student isn't strong enough to, to, to do this or, or my child, you know, doesn't have the, the attention span to do this activity, whatever it is. We can't do that. But you know what, in the end, I guess that comment and that resilience really helped during a PhD because, you know, when you give a talk and it's, you know, your weekly lab meeting, you're not going to be throwing flowers, you know, after your <laughs> talk, you're going to be criticized. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wish I was, but so you're going to be torn down. That presentation that you gave is going to be completely demolished and up to your title, not being good, you know, whatever it is, you didn't use the right PowerPoint slides, you know, the, your information was wrong. You didn't say it properly. Your stats are off. Your numbers are off. So I think we need to build that sort of resilience, especially if you're going in grad school, because you're going to get criticized. And uh, I remember when I started my postdoc in uh, education, it was a little bit different from a you know a PhD in, in in neuroscience where you're criticized very heavily, and then in education you know everybody was there to help you out. And I was like, why are you helping me? Aren't you supposed to you know tackle me down in, in terms of like my work? And there, so it was a different environment in education compared mm-hmm. to neuroscience. Yeah, yeah, it must be. Uh, the, I don't know the education domain, and and maybe you can you can uh, also tell us a little bit about how you know how research is is done in that domain. But um, but I remember in the domain that, that I worked in, it was very data driven and very exactly yeah. you know it could be very hurtful is not the the word that that I that I want <laughs> to look for but you know <laughs> it, it, it well sometimes it could be but it, it it could be hard because you work a lot to to get some data and then someone just looks at it from another angle and says well that you you're missing something here and it it makes everything crumble and. There it's goes hard. five months of your life, yeah. Yeah, but then you know that that prepares you for later on for when you're trying to publish, and and, and uh, one of the reviewers is you know is asking some question. So y- you prepare really, really well <laughs> before you publish or you try to publish something for sure. Exactly. <laughs> now, so Sejep here in in Quebec is before university. How 
my my question to you, the kind of the follow up question is: Did you have during your bachelor's and then and then your master's and your PhD? Did you have people that you consider were like role models um, uh, or mentors for you that 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 kind of accompanied you and uh, and kind yeah. of bolstered your your inner uh, inner motivation? Yeah, there were three people I think in my life that really mentored me and, and guided my my path. I think first I, I mentioned my grandfather before. He really mentored the whole education path and, and and placed a lot of emphasis on the importance of getting a good education. And then um, during my bachelor's, I had um, a teacher called uh, his name was uh, Doctor Alain Leroux, and during my second year, he sort of asked you know whether I'd be in- interested in research, so. He, I started volunteering for him, and that's how I became interested in research. So it was through my summer volunteering program with him, and I did a small research project with him in my last year of my um, my bachelor's. And then during my PhD, uh, Dr. Josephine Nalbantunglu, she really, really like built the foundation of like what was coming up and and helped me, and really guided me in terms of like what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, you know, for my career, which was something that didn't really exist. Um, I, I was that knowledge translation that I had, you know, that passion that had been ignited in me in terms of when I, when I was volunteering, I, I realized that that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. I wanted to talk about research, but to people who are not researchers. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it feels like, like uh, Dr. Nalbantoglu was quite a, an inspiration for you and and uh, you you mentioned before that you're still in touch with her can you share a little bit of, uh, about uh, how has she inspired you throughout these these years so she was the director of the neuroscience department or the ipn department at mcgill when i was there and um something that marked me is you can name any student of the hundreds of students that were part of that department and she knew everything about them their name which department which who you know who was their supervisor which school they came from, if they were doing well, if, you know, everything about them because she cared. She cared so much about every single student in that department. And um, I had originally started working in a different lab when I started my PhD. I was studying concussions and um, something had happened and I received an email from her. Um, you know, you see an email from the director of your department and you kind of like hear it a bit like what's going on <laughs> that I get kicked out. <laughs> and it was just, uh, you know, suggesting that I, I changed lab and I did that and it changed everything for me. So she, without even having met her and without brain restarting, she had already, you know, helped guide me in terms of my, my future. And um, yeah. And she, so that was the most important thing she cared. And once um, we started brain reach, you could see that she really cared about educating students and about helping us as grad students um, she would mention oftentimes that not all of you will end up in research. You will not, you know, I forget what the percentage is, but the percentage is, is very low in terms of, you know, grad students coming out of the PhD and doing a postdoc and, and getting a job as an academic. And she would remind us, you know, and she would tell us, you know, what else do you like to do? You know, what else are you good at? Look at your skills and, and, and look at your strength, your strengths and your passions. And, um, that's how I was really mentored by her and, and realized, okay, I, I like this knowledge translation aspect and I really love working with children and learning more about them. And I just took all that together and created Curious Neuron. Wow. And, and yes, it really seems like you, 
you found someone who who has yeah who was kind of cut out to be a mentor and to be in yeah. the position that she was in yeah i'm sure if you'd ask a lot of people that were you know in, in there during the time that i was i i'm i'm I, i would bet money on it that she she really guided a lot of them mm -hmm. and she she also uh she also probably was the pi of a of a lab too she had a lab yeah I just want to know whether you would consider that she also was an inspiration to you as a as a as a woman researcher and you know not only as a as a mentor oh definitely the the her work ethic and and her her knowledge um i i really looked up to her in terms of like the conversations you can have with her and you know i the, i I, th i think in terms of being a female um um graduate student i was really i would look up to her but i, I also looked up to um dr brenda milner who was mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. this at the time 90 something year old researcher still working um you know she's still working today around the hallways. I, yes <laughs> has she reached 100 yeah is she oh my I goodness think, uh, <laughs> she, it was just a birth her birth, there was a birthday celebration not long ago yeah i think it's 101 or anyway oh my goodness. i think she's past 100 i think oh wow you know it's it the the knowledge that these women have it, it really inspired me i i You know, it's and it's not just about being smart, but it's that curiosity, that drive to to get to to, to answer to have a sorry that drive to have questions and to find the answer to that question. That that's really what you know what's inspiring to me in terms of you know ha having a background in, in neuroscience. That's huge, and well, just confirming, she's 101. <laughs> so that's <Wow>. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and still working. <laughs> yes, still at the MNI. You know, I, I don't know if I want to work if I want to work till I'm 101, but I mean, <laughs> her, she's so inspiring. Well, that saying, uh, if you do what you love, you won't work one day exactly. of your life. So <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> she's believe probably that, not yeah. working. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she's just hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's amazing, and I, I really, uh, I, I really like that 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 you share this and and uh I'm, i'm happy that i kind of pushed the question a little bit more because yeah. i think it's super important today uh, i don't know if you have daughters uh i do i have one yeah. uh, you have one there you go mm -hmm. that that you know that she'll be in a world where she can do whatever she wants and that that uh you know it'll be she'll have equal chances and she'll never feel like oh you're not good enough for this or for that because uh because you're a girl and and Uh, these examples that that you shared uh, should be inspiring, and and I think uh, you know people go 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 um, uh, listeners out there go go just check out who Brenda Milner is mm -hmm. uh, if you go, if you want to get inspired, uh, and uh, and I think that's <laughs> that's the plug yeah. that I that I'm gonna, yeah I know <laughs> let people go go do the the research and yeah and uh, you can and imagine the generation she was from right exactly the struggle she must have had in oh the beginning. my gosh. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that's super inspiring, and uh, and I think, uh, and I'm I'm super thankful that that you're here at, at the the Papa PhD microphone just to to share this. I think it's super super Thank important. You. Um, now, curious neuron. You you know you you were a, a researcher, and you turned yourself into a, a, an entrepreneur, and also a specialist. Those are big words, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I... <laughs> you know, you're talking with schools, you're talking with, with parents to answer very pointed questions on, mm -hmm. uh, I guess, uh, uh, educating and, and uh, uh, child-rearing, etc. Did you have to take some training? Did you, you know, to, to 
get yourself into that into that sphere of of entrepreneurship and uh, and uh, of having now a product that you promote uh, and, and you being the face of that product actually. Mm -hmm. I no, I didn't take any. I wish I would have though because I would know how to run this beast. <laughs> But the I uh, I just went with it. You know, it was I had so I had two weeks after defending my <laughs> my PhD and submitting. Sorry, after submitting, I had. Two weeks of vacation between that and officially starting my postdoc, and in between those two weeks, I started Curious Neuron. <laughs> so I, I that was my vacation, and I I just you know uh, went with it. I had an idea, and I I decided let's see what happens. And it started off. Um, what I did is I took the idea from BrainReach, and I instead of giving um, lectures or teaching children, I taught teachers. So I was working with schools. I started, you know, calling some schools and, and telling them that I had, you know, some workshops available for teachers on executive functions, which is really something that students tr struggle a lot with in terms of planning and, and being able to focus and remembering and problem solving. So that's like an umbrella term for all of that. And, um, started talking about that, uh, started giving talks about what's the, the research behind ADHD and, you know, what is ADHD? Because a lot of teachers didn't really understand what it was in terms of a, a neuroscience perspective, you know, what's happening to the brain and, you know, why does this child have this and what can we do to help them? So those type of types of questions. And um, so I started giving these workshops and then that led to some teachers saying, well, you know, with this kind of knowledge, maybe you can work one-on-one -on -one with some of our students. And um, I, they put me in touch with the parents and I started um, working with students just out of nowhere, <laughs> basically. But my whole idea um, was play-based learning. And that's something that I had learned from my postdoc in the sense that, especially when you're young, you know, if you want to learn your alphabets or you want to learn math, it shouldn't be didactic in the sense where you're sitting down at a desk and you're listening to a teacher if you're three, four or five years old, even six or seven, you should be playing a game. There should be something where you're, you know, you're playing outdoors and then, you know, find three rocks. Well, I'm counting one, two, three. If I find two more rocks, how many rocks do you have in your hands? You know, like really. So that whole mindset became the way that I functioned in terms of like building this company and, and also the way that I parent right now. And, Um, so I kept, you know, I was still doing my postdoc, kept reading about play-based learning and, and this whole type of education and, you know, applying that to, to Curious Neuron. I started working with more and more kids. They were seeing a difference in, uh, in their grades just by playing games. Um, and then I ended up, so I worked privately with children and gave these workshops. I had my first child, uh, my daughter, who's now four and, um, tried to work while being home for a mat leave. So I didn't really have a mat leave. Um, two, two months after giving birth, uh, I was getting requests for workshops and I just felt like I couldn't say no because, you know, the ball had started rolling yeah. and I, I didn't want to stop it. So um, I would bring my daughter with me to these <laughs> workshops at schools and my husband would hold her while I was giving a talk. And then we'd take a quick break. I'd nurse and come back, you know, finish the talk. Wow. <laughs> so it was <laughs> really hard to launch. Um, but it continued. And then I went into, um, I fell pregnant again. And uh, near the end of my second pregnancy, I was working um, quite a few hours, evenings and weekends, but home with my daughter during the day. And I had a, a burnout. And I realized, okay, 
this is I, I can't keep this up. You know, I can't be everywhere. The there was a waiting list in terms of the clients that I was going to see. So I I just couldn't keep up with that. I tried training some people, um, but it was there wasn't anybody who had a background in both neuroscience and education. I couldn't find that, um, and I decided to stop working with children and to stop giving workshops and to you know really enjoy my second mat leave at its fullest. And my brain just couldn't stop thinking after I had my second child. I was like, okay, how can I continue something that I started in terms of the knowledge translation? And I just, I had to think outside the box and realize, wait a second, there's the internet. <laughs> so I launched my website and I started writing articles and I would take, you know, one or two science articles and see what the key points were and then put them into, you know, a lay article where I would just say, here are the take-home messages for parents or caregivers or early childhood educators. And here's what you could apply to your everyday life with your children. And then that grew into um, some people emailing me and saying, well, I have a few things to offer. And then I realized, okay, hold on. You know, if, if I'm talking about child development, so, so Curious Neuron, it's really focused on um, child development and education. So both aspects of my background. And I realized, well, if I bring in some educators and they give us some tips, or if I bring in some early childhood educators or even um, some occupational therapists or some physiotherapists, this all has to do with child development, you know, the, the milestones, whether it's motor, uh, whether it's language uh, or cognition, you know, cognitive, this all has to do with how a child develops. So now we're up to, I think, 27 or 28 different contributors on the website wow. from across the world who write articles. At, you know, touching different topics. So you can have an article on tantrums, the science behind tantrums, you know, <laughs> why, you know, and I think that's our most popular article. <laughs> and I think it's because it's our biggest struggle as a parent, right? Like, why is this child crying when I gave them the blue cup? They asked for the blue cup. <laughs> so I, I <laughs> there's, um, you know, the science behind tantrums. There's the science behind um, the stress of a child who starts daycare. There is, um, uh, you know, a stress that a child will go through, a baby will go through, especially when they're before the age of, they're, early, they're younger than three. So research, according to research, a child should be three before they're really taken away from their primary caregiver. But that's not the reality of today's society. So, you know, I, I, I you know, dug into the research and looked to see, you know, what I could find and what I can offer parents. And, you know, there is a way to, to start daycare in terms of an early transition, uh, sorry, a long transition, where the you know, anyway. So I, I I went into that topic as well. So our 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 website covers so many topics that can really help parents understand the why behind child development from a science aspect, not just from my opinion. Okay, and and so not only the knowledge, but the the creating the site, etc. It's all it's all it's all things that you developed yourself, like yes. Well, the idea of it, yeah. And, and you know, the name Curious Neuron comes from, I, I think I've mentioned curiosity a few times, but that's really what drives a person to learn, right? So if you're curious about something, you're learning. And when you're learning, you're activating those neurons in your brain. So yeah. Curious Neuron. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Excellent. That, that's, that is very cool. And, uh, and I think uh, it's, you know, parents today, uh, let's say the social environment has changed and, and families often are not uh, are like geographically dispersed and uh, i think it's really cool to have to have some some like science-based tools for parents out there who are learning to be parents because the, the first one that comes yeah. you're learning right it's like it's yeah. a huge learning curve 
yeah. to have this type of, uh, of content. I was still there. learning, I think, after my third one. They're, they're, all, they're all so different, right? <laughs> you know, I think what I want to be for parents is that the mother or mother-in-law, but that knows, like really, truly <laughs> knows like the facts, not those myths or those tales of whatever <laughs> we get from our parents or, or grandparents even. I, I want to be that sound voice that guides you in terms of parenting and you know you you're not sure uh, i don't know um, uh, why your child is having tantrums or what's the best way to deal with it well you know you're a mother or mother-in-law might say just let them sit there and cry or whatever it is and but you know if you look at the research the child is looking for empathy and they're, they're looking for support and they're looking for that connection with you so you know guiding them or or sitting with them and saying i'm sorry that you're you feel sad because i gave them you know i gave you the blue cup you know it's it's going to guide their brain development in a different way so it's it's really that kind of thing that i'd like to offer parents the the evidence-based mother-in-law exactly. yeah <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome all right city uh i'm i'm just going to ask you now kind of a, a last question and it's um it's that question where where i just uh kind of want to have you share with with the listeners some you know two or three uh pieces of, of advice to find their their passion and to not you know not be overly anxious about their you know what's going on with their phd or their postdoc to to kind of uh successfully transition to their to their uh work life to whatever comes after I think, well, the first one is, is really just to stick with what you enjoy. I don't know if that's just common sense, but I, I, it really makes a difference, right? So if, if there's an aspect of your PhD that you really enjoy, so whether it's, um, I don't know, it could be just the, the data analysis or it could be uh, the talks that you give, you know, that might guide you in a certain direction. So I really enjoy the talks and I had entertained the idea of becoming a teacher, you know, in a CGEP. You know, so that's, it was always that, that communication aspect of my PhD that really guided me um, and that knowledge translation. So if there's one aspect of your PhD that you really enjoy, focus in on that. And you have to step as hard as, as hard as it is because we already don't have a lot of time, but to step out of the lab uh, and to, to do something else, even get I don't know, some sort of one-year program uh, in a different field that, that merges with yours, you know, like uh, if it's in psychology and you know you don't want to become, you know, you don't want to do research in psychology, look into whatever aspect that you enjoyed. So whether it's child development or um, aging or whatever it could be, just to merge, I think also not to be afraid to merge your education with something else. Um And it could be a weird mix. You know, it could be uh, you just finished your PhD in neuroscience and you love cooking. Um, <laughs> and you might, you know, talk about the neuroscience of baking. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> don't be afraid to merge two different fields because that's what I did. I, I, I hesitated when I wanted to look into education a little bit more. And but it was that jump or that leap into something different that really helped me. Um, so if you know you don't want to go into academics, just to look at different fields and see what you can merge. Um, but yeah, and definitely stepping outside the lab and if you could volunteer with it for anything, just to see what else is out there and to build connections with other people and, and that network, I think maybe that's another one because with brain reach, I, I, I formed a network, um, and 
you know, spoke to other people and, and saw what else was available. So really networking. Don't just live in the lab, but <laughs> get out a little bit and, and see what else is out there. I think those are three great pieces of advice. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, no, and and I think they're they're central to 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 definitely like getting out of that bubble of of just looking at at your data. And it's it's very important. You need to do it to you know to get to your objectives. It's also super important uh, to uh, to uh, have you know to have connections with other people outside of that arena. And um, and to just let your creativity. For some people, it's creativity. For some people, uh, it's it's service. Is is you know, it's just giving their time to uh, to another to another organization. Exactly. So I think yeah. it's super super uh, super pertinent. Um, Cindy, before uh, before we finish the interview, I'd like to ask you if you have some links, uh, some uh, yes. Twitter handles that you want to share. Yes. So uh, if anybody wants to see it or, or read our articles, they can visit curiousneuron.com. And I also, uh, I'll be launching a podcast um, this week or next week, um, the Curious Neuron podcast. And so it'll be, there'll be interviews and um, guests that are you know in pediatrics or education and research. And also if they follow us on Instagram, so Curious Neuron on Instagram or on Facebook, uh, they, I, I try to provide parents with activities that they can do with their children who are between the ages of zero and five. So activities that will help promote development. Um, and there, I also have some quizzes on Instagram to help educate. So I, I, I never let go of that education part. <laughs> so I, I, I figured, you know, Instagram was a really, um, good base to, to keep educating people and they'll see, you know, uh, my posts that, I, I might have a picture of, you know, a brother and a sister, but I'll discuss, you know, what happens in the brain when you bond with a sibling kind of thing. So those are the type of posts that they'll see on, on our social media. And also we're, you know, Curious Neuron is always looking for people to write articles for our website, but mostly grad students. We really need people in research to, to help us out and to take an article and just summarize it in, in lay words um, for parents and for, for caregivers. So if any of your listeners are grad students and want to be in touch with um, me, um, they can contact me through info at curiousneuron.com. There you go, listeners out there. If you're looking for something to do on the side, here's a great opportunity if you're in that domain. Cindy, thank you so much for having uh, given me this, this, the time. I know you're, you have uh, children to go attend <laughs> to. Nobody yelled during the interview, so it's no, really that's good. that's awesome. <laughs> I would call it a success. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for having me, David. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests.